The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. This week a student sent me a link, a Christianity Today study that was done by Bible Gateway, a, uh, the most frequented Bible resource website in all the world. And it cataloged um, the most looked at verses in all of Scripture over the last year in 15 different major countries. And it was intriguing that... Um, 75% of them were from the Old Testament. And I wonder if 75% of our preaching in the West is from the Old Testament. But outside of the West, that's where most people are going more often than not. And the, the most frequented uh, passage of Scripture was Psalm 23. A place we go to for comfort, to find our God who is still on the throne, the great shepherd king, and working for us, not against us. We're going to take three weeks, Lord willing, to walk through this massive book, 150 Psalms. It was the hymn book of the period of initial restoration. It's clear that the oldest psalm is from the days of Moses, Psalm 90. And then we have psalms that were written definitely after Israel had arrived, arrived back in the land after exile, after the new temple was built and their longing for the presence of God and hoping in the coming David to arrive. So uh, a thousand-year period that gave birth to the Psalms, and yet someone there in the final stages before the Old Testament came to an end put the Psalms together as we have them. This individual put the Psalms together in five books. So if you've got Psalm 1 open, I invite you, open it up to Psalm 1. In our English Bibles, you can pretty much go right to the center of your big Bible, and that's where you're going to find the Psalter, the hymn book of the post-exilic period. So in mine, I've got this big heading, the Psalms, a nice little summary here in gray box, and then before I ever get to Psalm 1, it says, book 1. Have you ever noticed that? There are five books that make up the Psalter. So think about the Psalter the book of Psalms, as a, as a 150 Psalm hymn book. And this hymn book has been grouped into five specific portions. Now, most of us don't think about um, the Psalms as anything but selected songs. But these five books appear to have been put together very intentionally. And today our goal, in the next 50 minutes, is to overview the big macro structure of the Psalms. And hopefully it will give you perhaps a greater lens in thinking about when you jump into an individual psalm, what's the context? Most of us don't think about a context when it comes to 
specific psalms. But there is a biblical context for the psalms within a major book. Now, a few features as we look at this book. Five books. Each of the five books ends with a doxology. Who can tell me what a doxology is? We all say, okay, let's stand and sing the doxology. And we know what the doxology is. But what is a doxology? Doxology. What, what, what is that? A word of praise. Okay, we're going to give glory to God through our words. So it's an expression of praise to God. And every one of the books ends specifically with a doxology. So let's take a peek at them. Book 1 ends in Psalm 41, very last verse. So you get through 41 chapters, and then they pause, and whoever stitched the psalms together at the end either picked specific psalms, four of them, three of them, uh, four of them, yes, picked four psalms because the, at the very end of the Psalter, the doxology is actually spread over five chapters. It's five specific psalms that give praise to God right in a row that end the whole, the whole grouping. But either the, the final editors of the psalms who stitched it all together either added this final comment or they found a psalm that definitely ended in a doxology and they placed it right here because at each of the, at each of the end of the, of the books, we get this call to praise. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. This is where we're supposed to end up. If you've just started singing the songs or praying the songs, when you get up to Psalm 41, what's supposed to happen in your heart? It's Godward. These psalms are crafted in order to move us to praise, move us to exalt, move us to celebrate the great king over all things. We move into book 2. Psalm 72, 18 and 19 ends this way. Well, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Now, in the context of Psalm 72, those wondrous things have been defined. They are God establishing a kingdom and the promise that that kingdom will never end. That one day, what he's doing through Israel in the son of David will actually give birth to blessing to the nations. And so all of a sudden, Psalm 72 becomes a psalm that we can also sing. Sing praises to our God because he has indeed done wondrous things and we're a part of it. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then Psalm 72 comes to an end and it says, Thus ends the prayers of David. Now that's kind of strange because we keep reading and there's many other Psalms that are going to be include David in the title. But what this suggests is that at some point in the history of Israel, most likely books 1 and 2 were by themselves a hymn book. They were already packaged, probably in the days of David. 
And that this, this is the amount from Psalm 1 or Psalm 3, because we're going to see Psalm 1 and 2 don't have any title and they're kind of put up right up front as an introduction to the whole. They give us clarity about how to sing, what, what perspective we're to have as we go through and sing the Psalms. But books 1 and 2, they, they shape a unit. Almost all of them are explicitly written as a psalm of David, a psalm of David, a psalm of David. And then we come to the end of book two, and it says, Thus ends the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. So that at least suggests in the, in the uh, history of the psalm's birth over these, this thousand-year period, at one point, books one and two were linked up together already, and that they were passed on to future generations. And then a later generation added the next three books. We continue. Book 3, Psalm 89. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So what does amen mean? Amen is the Hebrew verb to believe. Every promise in God is yes and amen, says Paul. Abraham believed God. There was a great article written once, Abraham's Amen. And what it was pointing to was Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed. He believed, yes, when we say amen, we're affirming, declaring to everyone, yes, I believe what has just been said. Yes, I will trust God in this way. Amen and amen. Blessed be the Lord. Book 4. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise Yahweh. Which, this side of the cross, because we are influenced by um, Revelation, which doesn't say uh, simply, Hallelujah, in Hebrew, praise Yah, short for Yahweh. And so in our Old Testament translation, we just say praise the Lord, praise Yah. But in Revelation, in a Greek translation, they simply transliterate. They just take the Hebrew and spell it out. And so in Revelation, when they're saying praise Yahweh, they just say hallelujah, hallelujah. And that's how it comes to us in our songs. We simply sing, Hallelujah! But what we're saying in Hebrew is, Praise Yahweh! And it's, it's actually a, a command form. It's a plural command, and we're calling one another to get involved. When we say, Hallelujah, we're not calling God to do something or declaring something to Him. We're actually talking to one another because it's a plural command. You, with me, praise Yahweh! Praise Yahweh! And it's... Like uh, we're all gathering together in, in great joy and celebration to declare what we know to be true. He is worthy of praise. And then we come to book five, and all of the Psalter, the very last five Psalms, every single one just starts out, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Some of them say praise Yahweh, the whole word, Yahweh as a whole name. Some of them just shorten it and say praise Yah, praise Yah. But it's just a shortened form of his name. So this is, this is the structure of the Psalms. It moves through five books, and at every book, where it's supposed to lead us 
is not in brokenness, not in hopelessness, not in desperation, but it's to move our heart from wherever we're at, points of elation or points of discouragement, and move us through there all the way up to the point of praise. The Psalms are designed when wherever we're at in life, whether we're in, in individual or in groups, whether we are in desperation or in celebration, we're supposed to enter into the Psalms and be able to sing the words with the psalmist, and this is where we're supposed to end up. This is the ultimate end, the glory of God. Now, as we look at the Psalms, we don't just have five books. We have what appears to be a framing. A framing that begins with, blessed be the man. Now, this word for blessed is not the word that we normally think of from our Old Testament perspective of blessing, covenantal blessing. This is the same word that shows up in the New Testament In the Beatitudes, it's the statement of satisfaction. Happy is the man. Satisfied is the man. Blessed is the man. It's something internal. He finds himself transformed. He's a man who is satisfied in his God. This man, which one? The one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of the mocker or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That man is blessed. Now, Psalm 1, what it does is it contrasts the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked which will perish. There's only two ways, and that is the talk of wisdom. Psalm 1 opens with a walking psalm. You either walk in this way or you walk in this way. There's only two options. There's no middle ground. And so, as I look at it, I've pointed that out in the way that I've framed it. This is just my introductory overview of the outline. We're going to come all the way to my detailed outline, which is on the back of your page, but don't look there yet. Um, But I just want you to see, it starts out by saying, don't walk in the way of the sinner... Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is about getting in the right path. This is about walking with God or walking with, the other, with a group other than God. Those are the only two options. It's a psalm of wisdom. What will you choose? Wisdom is about making right choices. Which way will you go? Then we move to the next psalm, and it's focused on the W I used, was waiting. Waiting when all the nations are in an uproar. All the nations are against God. They are in rage and the people's plot in vain. This plotting is the exact same word that's in Psalm 1 for meditation. You either meditate on the law of God or you meditate in how to be hostile to God. Those are the only two options. So even though it's translated as plot, just know it's exactly the same word as we find in verse 2. One man is on God's law, meditating day and night, and then the nations are in a rage. The peoples are meditating in vain. They're plotting. They're, They're letting their minds focus on how they can stand against God, and it's futile. 
Why? Because God has determined that he will rule and reign ultimately through his son. So it says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with an iron rod, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what do the kings need to do? They need to respond in wisdom. And what does wisdom look like? Surrendering to the to the Yahweh, the great king's son, who's ruling and reigning on earth. And blessed are those who take refuge in this son. Now notice how the end of Psalm 2 parallels the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed be the man, and blessed are all. Blessed is the man who's buried in the word of God, and blessed are all who find refuge in the son. There's a, a framing that takes place, that's holding together Psalm 1 and 2. Neither of these psalms has a title. As soon as you get to Psalm 3, you see a psalm of David. Psalm 4, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm 5, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm 6, a psalm of David. Psalm 7, a shigion of David. Throughout the... Rest of book one, the Psalms are over and over again given titles. These two don't have a title. That shows that they're tied together. There's something similar to them. They don't have a title. But there's more than just that. We see this framing blessing formula, and then we have a whole bunch of words that are repeated between Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man in Psalm 1.1. Blessed are those who take refuge in the Son, Psalm 2.12. How about the repetition of the word way? Don't be one who stands in the way of sinners, Psalm 1 1. Psalm 1 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Chapter 2, verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So you've got to make sure you're on the right road. You don't want to be on the road that will result in perishing. And the right road is the road of being a person of the Word of God. But it's not just that. It's a person who's surrendered to the Son. And next, meditate and plot. I already pointed to that one. Meditate on the law day and night. Don't plot in vain. And then perish. The ultimate end of the wicked is perishing. Psalm 1-6. The ultimate end of those who fail to surrender to the Son of God, is perishing, Psalm 2, verse 12. Now look at Psalm 2 with me. We're going to look very carefully at these two Psalms in a second, but verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage. So who is singing Psalm 2? The Messiah. He's called the Messiah in verse 2 of chapter 2. Notice it's translated anointed. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against 
His anointed. That's the word Messiah. They're standing against His Messiah. But then in verse 7, it explicitly says, the one who's singing, I, is the Messiah. Now what this suggests to me, in light of the way that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are linked up, that if the Messiah is the singer of Psalm 2, and he's calling people when he says at the end of the psalm, Now therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, serve Yahweh with fear, kiss the Son. This would be the king, the anointed one, the Messiah, declaring to the nations of the world, Stop being hostile against me. Stop rebelling. Kiss the Son. That's me. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Son. Satisfied is the one who finds me as his help, me as his hope. But what it suggests to me is that if, if Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are so bound together, and the singer of Psalm 2 is the Messiah, then could it not be that the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked but who meditates on the law day and night is none other than the Messiah himself. He is the one who's leading the way. He's on the right path, and he's saying, join me on this path. Any other path is perishable. That if you're going to be blessed on one path, namely the context of the Word of God, and you're going to be blessed when you find refuge in the Son, you can know this, it's still not two different paths. It's all blessing from God, which means to be a man of the Word is to be following the Son who's leading the way. And all of a sudden then, as an introduction to the Psalms, what we're seeing is the voice of the Messiah leading the way as one who carries his own cross. Psalms filled with lament, filled with tragedy. And the New Testament authors look at this psalm, they quote from the book of Psalms more than any other Old Testament book, and they see the laments as the laments of the Messiah. They can be ours when we are in the Messiah, when we're on the same path as the Messiah, when we're following Him in His way. They can be, by extension, our songs, our laments that ultimately end with hope in God. But before they're ours, they're His. He's on the path, walking the journey with all these nations that are hostile against Him. And God has declared, every one of them, you will oversee. Your kingdom will stand and all the kingdoms of the earth will be put down. He is first the man of the word. And then the call is for us to join Him on that path. Because any other way is suicidal. Let's look at Psalm 1 a little more carefully. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This man is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's the blessed man, the satisfied man. Not so, the wicked. That not so, in verse 4, seems to me to be contrasting with there's a, there's a, a, 
a context of blessedness, and that's not where the wicked man is. The satisfied man is the one who is not hanging out in the context of the sinner. Not so the sinner. This man grounded deeply with right next to a stream of water, and the, the, the stream seems to be the Word of God. That's the image. Those who are in the book are like a tree. The man is like a tree who is in the book. That is, he's like a tree that is planted by the stream. The stream of water that's ever-renewing, ever-flowing is the Word of God that is then nurturing and filling up this man, not so the wicked. He is like chaff that the wind drives away. Unrooted, unfruitful, dried up and fleeting. Therefore, because he's this way, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's how I synthesize what the psalm is about, and then we're going to look at my outline. The psalmist is trying to motivate people. But in the way that he's writing it, he's just declaring, the satisfied man looks like this. The state of the righteous is a state of satisfaction. But the state of the wicked is the opposite. And he's laying it out, but it seems as though he's not just describing something, he's calling people to something. He's wanting us to participate in making the right kind of choice. Which kind of man do we want to be? So the psalmist motivates individuals to pursue a life rooted in God's Word by contrasting the blessed state of the righteous and the unblessed state of the wicked. Let me look how, see how I see this working. Blessed is the man. That's the blessed state. And then it characterizes what a person who is satisfied looks like. Number one, the pattern of his life is not associated with rebellion. Number two, the pleasure of his life is God's Word. And number three, the placement of his life is nourishing. And the produce of his life is plentiful and permanent. Let's look at each of those. The pattern of his life is not associated with rebellion. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He stands not in the way of sinners. He sits not in the seat of scoffers. Those are your three options. You're walking, you're standing, you're sitting. That's all of life. And when you look at your life, what is it connected to? Is it characterized by a life of rebellion, hanging out with those that are hostile to God, hostile to His Word? Or is it something else? The blessed man, as you look at the pattern of his life, not perfect overnight, but ever progressing over a lifetime, is the pattern of his life associated more with rebellion or with its opposite, a life surrendered to God. The blessed man, the satisfied man. Do you want to be satisfied today? The call of the text is follow the Messiah 
in running from what is evil, turning from rebellion and clinging to what is good. The pleasure of his life is God's book. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. Once again, if walking, standing, and sitting is all of life, the meditation on the book, day and night, is all of life. It doesn't mean you're not engaging in working on your taxes or carrying out your accounting responsibilities or teaching at your school or picking up the trash or disciplining your kids. But when you're doing that, the pattern is not one of rebellion. It's one of pleasure. Pleasure in God's Word, which means you have to know it. Because you can't be having this thing open all the time and looking at it. If you did, you wouldn't be obedient to it. Because it calls you to live day in and day out, interacting with others. So as Pastor Jason was saying this morning, it's the interpersonal element of proclaiming God's Word. The public proclamation, the personal proclamation in our morning devotions, and then the interpersonal, day in and day out. And this meditation has to move through all three spheres, the public, the private, and the interpersonal. It's all of life. Two different ways. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. The way of the word and the context of rebellion. The placement of his life. Where is he? He is... Rooted in the right context. He's like a tree that's planted by the streams of water. He's like a tree that's, that's been placed in the right spot. By nature, without any artificial intrusion, you don't have to set up the hose. If you forget, it's still going to be nurtured. Because of its placement, it's so grounded in the book. He's eating and sleeping it. It's just coming into him because he's so closely associated with it. It's not a distant thing. The Word of God is his life and his breath. Having it on the shelf isn't enough. Somehow it has to get into us so that we're thinking about it. It's often we're known so much more by our reactions than our actions. So that when we react, what's coming out is the life-giving streams that were planted near. The water is just flowing out of us. So that when the rain stops coming and we enter into a season of drought, we don't find ourselves getting wilted. Why? Because our roots go deep and they're connected to the life-giving stream. God's word of promise, God's word of command for Tree and I, when we went through our adoption journey and, and the, um, the loss of the child we thought we were going to bring home, and then the season where there was so much question whether we'd get to bring home Ezra as well, the, that extended nine-month ripping of our soul. It was God's word of promise and His word of command that just gave us life, that just kept us going. When... It seemed like everything around us was drought. Everything around us was dark. Where else could we go 
He alone has the words of eternal life. We have to have a a lifestyle that isn't running to every other place. That's where the wicked go. That's where the wicked hang out. Looking for satisfactions in broken cisterns that do not satisfy. But instead we go to the Word where we can truly find ourselves happy. A happiness that is not ultimately based on our circumstance. But a deep-rooted hope in our God that is present in light of all that He's promised to do in the future. The unblessed state of the wicked. We get this in verse 4. Not so the wicked. And then notice the verse 5 has a therefore. So that's why I make verse 4 the basis. The basis of something. The basis of the wicked man's dismal future. And then the nature of wicked people's dismal future. So verse 5, the the basis of it is this. Sorry, verse 4. The wicked are not so... They're not blessed. They're not happy. They might think they are, but ultimately they're not. They are like chaff, dried up, withered, unconnected, unfruitful. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And because this is their makeup, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice that the word righteous is being contrasted with the wicked. That means that what's being depicted of this blessed man up at top is the righteous man. The man who is in right order with God is the man who is submitted to his book. That's the righteous man. Anything else is wickedness. And when it Push comes to shove. When time comes to an end and we enter into the judgment, the only one who will actually be standing is the righteous man. Everyone else will be leveled. Or you could say, the only tree that will withstand the ultimate storm of God's wrath is the one that is so deeply rooted, built on the streams of God's word that are ever flowing. All other trees will blow over. Where are you today? The psalm's calling us to ask. And if we come to an answer that is not where we should be, the answer is not despondency. The answer is, okay, I know what I need to do. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. You might be in the season of big sun, or you might be in the season... I I was thinking this week... You know, the Bible was written in the Middle East, and therefore light and darkness really worked well. I mean, that's that's common factor. We think about light as the image of hope. Well, I thought, what would happen if, if the Bible had been written in Minneapolis? This is how I was feeling this week. I was thinking, all that light and dark, light overcoming darkness imagery would have been substituted by, like, spring overcoming winter. Right? It's always winter, it's never Christmas. And it's easy to feel that way. And yet, know this the Lord knows. He knows the journey you're on, He knows the way of the righteous. 
It might be a bumpy one. It might be through the valley of the shadow of death. But He knows and He cares. And in the end, you will stand vindicated. This is hopeful. This is helpful. We move to Psalm 2. If the first Psalm is about walking with the Messiah... He wasn't mentioned there, but I've already pulled him in. I'm saying he's on the path. The only path where we can find refuge is kissing the sun, finding refuge in the sun. That's the path where the Messiah is. And that suggests our walking is a journey with the Anointed One. Now we move into Psalm 2, which is explicitly about the Messiah. And it sets us up as we're not only supposed to be walking, we're supposed to be waiting. We want to be on the side where we can wait with anticipation for the day when the Son of God establishes His kingdom and puts an end to all of this brokenness. Waiting. We call it eschatology, the study of the last things. So we have a psalm of wisdom followed by a psalm of waiting or a psalm of eschatology. Here's how it looks. The psalmist calls the nations to take refuge in God's royal Son in order to enjoy satisfaction, blessedness. Dependence on Yahweh's provision and protection can never be separated from His Son. The way that God provides, says this psalm, the way that God will protect is ultimately through His Anointed One. So, dependence on Yahweh's provision and protection through His King, through His Royal Son, and His counsel, through the counsel of this King, is what will provide refuge and satisfaction to the righteous in all situations. That's the main theme, I think, of this psalm. Let's look at its structure. The basis of the call to the blessed state of refuge in God's royal Son. This psalm, in contrast to Psalm 1, actually includes commands. Which suggests to me this is the main of the two psalms. But the first one, after we get and we hear the commands, the way that this psalm ends will call us back to reflect again on Psalm 1. Because it's when the commands come... The commands in verse 10, be wise, be warned, serve, rejoice, kiss the sun. This is where the weight of these two psalms falls. This is what we're supposed to take away. And then we have to pause and we say, but doesn't he want us to be a blessed man who, who delights in the law of God? And I want to suggest when we get to the end of Psalm 2, if we're reading it rightly, I think... Where we're supposed to end up is to say, how do I kiss the sun? How do I serve and rejoice in the Lord? How do I take heed of the warning? What does it look like to find refuge in the sun? What it practically looks like is becoming a man or a woman of God's word. That's what it looks like. So let's see how it plays itself out. So the call is going to be, submit yourself to the sun ultimately by following God's Word. And if you're in the Word, you'll become a follower of the Son. That's, that's where it's headed. But that, that's the call, so we get first the basis, because there's a therefore in verse 10. The therefore, we have to say, what's it there for? Because verses 1, and not, 1 through 9 are true, therefore verse 10 should happen. So what is the basis in verses 1 through 9? And I see on my screen here, I didn't 
all my verses aren't right in the second half, but let's look at the futility of rebellion. Why do the nations rage? Why are they doing this? Why do the peoples of the earth continue to be hostile to God? Why don't they surrender? Don't they realize how vain it is? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the world. They wake up with their first breath, their first cry out of the womb, and they are in a world controlled by God. And the rest of their lives are spent trying to get out from under His control. Innately, in our souls, wanting to take control back over from the very beginning. Not wanting to say, God's in charge and I'm delighted with it. That's where the nations are. They're raging, and yet God is sitting in heaven. In certain texts, we could go to and find God grieving over that state, but not in this text. In this text, it says, He who sits in heaven laughs. You'll either be sitting in the context of the wicked or sitting in the context of the God who's over all things. Those are your two options for sitting. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Sovereign One, notice it's not L-O-R-D capital letters there in verse 4. That means it's the Sovereign One, the Lord over all things. The Sovereign One holds them in derision. They are an enemy of God. By nature, children, objects of wrath. Then He will speak to them in His wrath. He will terrify them in His fury. How? How will He speak to them in His wrath? What will it look like for God to bring His judgment down? It will be through his Messiah. Notice what it says. He spoke to him in his wrath, terrified them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The way that God rules is through his Messiah. Verse 7, the certainty, if we have the futility of their rebellion, the certainty of their submission. But not all who submit... Will it go well with? It all depends on the timing of the submission. Do you submit before the ultimate day, or will you be forced to submit on the ultimate day? Here it is. I will decree, says the psalmist, the anointed one, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, applied right to Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you, Notice if he is the son of Yahweh, he is the son of the living God. You are my son, today I have begotten you, my royal son, the one through whom I will oversee all things. Ask of me, he said, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's how simply the nations of the world will break. How easily the hostility of the world will be put down. A broken vessel. So we come to the nature of the call to the blessed state of refuge in God's royal Son. And my verses are wrong, but my words, I think, are right. The call to take refuge in God's royal Son. We see it, it's verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, 
Don't be foolish. That's what the way of the wicked is. It's a way of foolishness. It's a way of futility. In contrast, be wise. What does wisdom look like? Repenting. Wisdom look like, looks like surrendering. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear. There's where Brad's opening statement of talking about the fear of God. This is the right thing. This is a, a good thing. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that you will not turn from me. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will not turn from me. Jeremiah 32. This is new covenant talk. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Romans 3. What's the problem with this world? No one fears God. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For this wrath is quickly kindled. The, the wrath of the Son is being equated with the wrath of Yahweh. They're, they're linked up. They're side by side. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So here's the implication that I have. Because the only commands in Psalm 1 and 2 relate to finding refuge in the Son, the clearest way, tying together Psalm 1 and 2, the clearest way that we do this, how do we submit to the Son? How do we kiss Him? How do we enjoy this level of intimacy? The clearest way to do it has already been laid out for us then in Psalm 1. We do this through submitting to God's Word, which is what guides the King. Notice Deuteronomy. Had to go there. Deuteronomy 17. When the king of Israel sits on the throne of his kingdom, what is he supposed to do? He shall write for himself a book, in a book a copy of this law. Meditate on it day and night. This is drawing together Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 into one theme. The king and the word. He shall write into his, a book a copy of this law approved by the priest, and he shall leave it on his shelf and never meditate on it day and night. No, it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the foundational commandment for what Israel's king was to look like. He was not a ruler over the people. He was a ruler of the people. He wasn't designed to replace Yahweh. He was supposed to represent Yahweh. So when he shows up, the ultimate royal son of God, perfectly imaging his father, what will he be? He will be a man of the word. And to get on his path means that we will align with him in being surrendered to the book. So Psalm 1 becomes a portrait first of the Messiah and then a call for each one of us to follow in His train, to get on the right way and not the wrong way. And this is the lens through which we go to enter into the Psalms. Building right off of the book of Ruth that ended with David and this vision of hope, the kingdom will come. Just as David redeemed the ancestors, just as God redeemed David's ancestors through a redeemer in Bethlehem, He will redeem his descendants through a redeemer in Bethlehem. And then we move right into the Psalms and we hear messianic music. 
And we should sing it like that. We're not just praising God, we're praising what He will do for us through His Messiah. We sing every one of the Psalms in light of the future hope of the Messiah. So let's take a step back again and look at the rest of the Psalter. This is how we enter in. We enter in through walking and we enter in through waiting. Kingdom wisdom, kingdom eschatology. But then we come to the rest of the book, the books. And what we see, if, if all you do is you track the titles, I don't know if you've ever done this, just walk through the Psalms and just read the titles. Doesn't sound thrilling, does it? I did it this morning. So I did it this morning, and almost all of the Psalms in Book 1 are Davidic. Almost all the Psalms in Book 2 are Davidic. Almost zero Psalms in Book 3 are Davidic. Almost zero in 4 And in five, all of a sudden, there's a rising, heightening, once again, of Davidic Psalms. And I think what's going on is there's actually a pattern in in the Psalter that's moving from Psalms of lament and crisis of the kingdom, a lot of them David running from his enemies, to David being established on the throne, to Psalms that have David not on the scene at all, think divided kingdom, to Psalms where they're in book four, almost all, so many of them are explicitly exilic, separated from God, calling out, please restore us. And then at the very end, Psalm 107 opens up with songs of praise because they're back in the land. And they're longing for, why is there an increased number of Davidic Psalms at the end? Because these Psalms are not the songs of the original David. They're the Psalms of the hoped for coming David. Messianic music. Let's see how this plays itself out. So you've got your Bible open. Go to Psalm 41 with me. Psalm 41. This is the final Psalm. I should have started, I'm sorry, I should have started in Psalm 3. You guys go to Psalm 41. I'll just start in Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him. This is crisis. It's a psalm of David. He's the king. And yet he's living in crisis. Running. Fleeing. Is God going to be for him or is God not going to be for him? Psalm 41. This is the final psalm in book 1. How does it begin? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. So think about, this is a framing, this this is framing Psalm 1, book 1. He's running, he's fleeing, and then it ends with, oh God, I am poor. In the day of trouble, blessed is the, is, in the day of of trouble, Yahweh delivers him. Yahweh protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. Yahweh sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. This is the psalmist, the voice of David, crying out and saying, Oh God, will you help me? You are blessed because you intrude into space and time, into brokenness, and redeem people out of brokenness. This is Psalms of Lament. Blessed be Yahweh, 
This book ends, verse 13, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. This is, most of these psalms are all explicitly focused on a crisis in the kingdom. Now we move to the next unit. Psalm 42 finds the psalmist finding rest in God. Telling him to find rest in God, rather. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He is my salvation. And what we see as we move through this unit of book 2 is that the Psalms begin to turn from crisis to confidence to David sitting on the throne, celebrating his reign. Psalms that are celebrating the king's placement. And then we come to the very end, Psalm 72, and we get one of the most glorious messianic Psalms in Scripture. It begins of Solomon. And then at the very end of it, verse 20, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So when it says, of Solomon, it suggests to me that this is Solomon's coronation psalm. As David, who has been on the throne, is now passing the baton on to his son. And what does he call for? Give the king your justice, O God, your righteousness to the royal son. May your royal son, that should echo Psalm 2, may your royal son... Judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice verse 4. May he crush the oppressor. A skull-crushing blow. Look at verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Images of Genesis 3.15. Then we come to the end, verse 17. May this king's name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May his people be blessed in him. All the nations call him blessed. Fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. David is now sitting on the throne, passing the baton. The kingdom of God is being established in space and time. No longer in crisis now being established. God has brought them through journey and established His King, and it's a picture of hope for the future. But all we have to do is turn to Psalm 73 to see that things aren't all right. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The kingdom that is now established around David and now passed to Solomon is filled with wickedness. There's an Israel, notice the pure in heart, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but The majority of Israel, says this psalm, are not pure in heart. They're running from God. And we enter into a stage of kingdom division and rebellion. And book three is just loaded with testaments of this rebellion. Psalm 89, at the capstone of book three, raises big questions. Because it says, verse 35 of Psalm 89, 
Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. God has made promises to the king that he will establish the king forever. But then it says, but now, God, you have cast off and rejected us. You are full of wrath against your Messiah. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. The Psalms have moved ahead from celebrating the Davidic covenant to questioning the Davidic covenant. Because of the rebellion and the chaos of the age, we're moving through the Psalter and it's telling a story. And those who put the Psalms together are living without the story fully fulfilled. And they're trying to teach people how to sing messianic music. Recognizing that sometimes it seems like God's not on the throne. That His King is not there. Physically, tangibly, He's not there right now. Would Ezra would have said. Malachi would have said. But know this. The hope will stand. But it, he, right now, there's just a big question mark. God's kingdom is up for grabs. Look at verse 49 of chapter 89. Lord, where is your steadfast love, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it? That's the question. Book 4. Lord, you've been our, our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And yet... Where are we? Where are we? How do we live in this world? And the Psalms just begin to unpack, pleading, God, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days because right now we don't feel satisfied. We want to be in a blessed state, but we're not there. We've been rebelling. Now we come to the end of book 4. Psalm 106. Verse 47, save us, O Lord, gather us from among the nations. That means the singers of, the, of book 4 are in exile, separated from God. You've moved from kingdom rise and establishment to kingdom division and rebellion to exile, separation, but renewed focus. Save us, O God, gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. Bring us back. Don't leave us out in exile. Don't leave us separated. And then we move to book 5 and it opens this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Book 5 moves us then into redemption. It's hope. It's restoration and hope of full fulfillment. And then book 5 moves us then, in this context of celebrating redemption, all the way up to five chapters of praise. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The two most frequent kinds of psalms are psalms of lament and psalms of praise. Next week we're going to go in and wrestle with the emotion of the psalms and consider where we, how we're supposed to sing the music of the psalms and the different types of genres that are there when we're in certain types of... You know, if we just need to praise, where do we go? If we just need to cry, where do we go? But what we notice is that there's, in book 1, 19 of the 41 psalms are psalms of lament. 
There's only four psalms of praise. But as you move through this, you get to book three, which is where I said um, Israel's in their rebellion. The Davidic covenant is being questioned. Is God going to be faithful? Everything's going bad. There's not one psalm of praise. But then we move on, and all of a sudden the psalms of praise begin to escalate, and the psalms of lament begin to diminish. This doesn't seem by chance to move from high lament to high praise suggests this, there's an intentional structuring of this whole big book that we usually just hop into to find one psalm. But that there's a flow through this hymn book. So here's, here's my... Here's me putting it all together as we close. Psalm 1 and 2, walking with the Messiah, kingdom wisdom, waiting in the Messiah, in Him, finding refuge in Him. Kingdom eschatology. And it ends with worshiping. Yes, worshiping Yahweh, but all of this has been about doing it through the Messiah. Worshiping God as the great Redeemer, as the great Savior on account of the Messiah, kingdom praise. And then framed in the middle of this is Yahweh, the God who instructs, elects, and delivers His King and His people, kingdom crisis. Yahweh, the God who establishes His King and delivers, kingdom rise and establishment. Yahweh, the God who rebukes and disciplines His people, kingdom division and rebellion. Yahweh, the God who remembers His people and sustains, kingdom lost. And Yahweh, the God who restores and renews in the hope of His kingdom fulfillment, kingdom restoration and hope. And as I jump into the Psalter, I'm thinking about those categories as I'm, where am I at in this song that I'm wanting to sing, that I'm wanting to cry out in my heart. It, it just gives me a frame of knowing where I am from lament to praise. In the story of God's kingdom in crisis all the way up to kingdom consummation. The music is designed to move us internally from brokenness to hope. And have it focused all ultimately on the Messiah, on Yahweh, through His Messiah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the book of Psalms. We just covered a lot of material today. I pray that You would help us be among those who kiss the Son, who surrender to the Son, who fear You by submitting to Your Son, and that we do so by being men and women of Your book. May we be among those who walk in the path of the righteous and not in the path of the wicked. Show us where our sin is. Convict us of it. Help us repent. And thank you that real repentance will bring real mercy and that we can truly find refuge from your wrath by aligning ourselves with your Son. To his glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi Meyer. Org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.